Welcome back to the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. My name is Elise Glink, and in addition to hosting this podcast, I'm a best-selling author, radio talk show host, financial expert, and CEO of Best Money Moves, a financial wellness technology company. Equifax is a leading credit reporting agency, and last April, as part of its ongoing effort to be helpful to you in this time of economic pain, the company launched an extensive COVID and Credit Financial Resource Center. You can find it at Equifax.com. This year has just been overwhelming in almost every way I can think of, financially, politically, emotionally, and in all things that have to do with health. This podcast is part of that effort to expand your access to some of the leading financial experts in the country, as well as Equifax's own credit experts. We discuss real-world financial solutions and share resources for people just like you who want to protect your credit and manage your finances during this COVID pandemic. In this episode, we've got Kelly Levine, the Vice President of Consumer Insights for Allianz, joining us today to talk a little bit about how people are actually feeling about their retirement. They've just released the 2020 Retirement Risk Readiness Study, and what they've discovered is that as Americans are aging and experiencing longer retirements and rising costs, people are getting really worried about whether their money is going to last. But first, let's turn to Beverly Anderson, president of the Equifax Global Consumer Solutions Division. Hey, Bev, welcome back to the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. Hi, Elise. Thanks. Nice to be here. You know, it's really hard to believe that we're more than six months into the pandemic and in the final months of 2020. I I can't believe it. I, I know I'm not the only one to say I'll be happy to see this year go. You know, someone said to me yesterday, imagine that 2020 is your best year ever. And I was struggling to frame that in my mind, right? Because this has been an impossibly difficult year for so many people. But I did come up with some sort of a silver lining. If we hadn't had the pandemic, my two adult kids, Alex and Michael, wouldn't have come home for the whole summer. We had three months together as a family with family dinners every night. And that hasn't happened in at least seven or eight years. If you were going to imagine that 2020 was your best year ever, what comes to mind? What do you think about that? That's a great framing because I certainly haven't thought about 2020 as being my best year ever for sure. (laughs) Right. I think what's been so exciting is that the time that my family has gotten together, it's actually been pretty special. You know, we've gotten together um, in Charlotte to see family there. Uh, We've gotten together in Hilton Head uh, on the beach. That usually happens in May. It happened in September for Labor Day. And it was just special time, special time with lovely wonderful family. So that was, that's, that's the special part. Yeah. It does seem to take on outsized importance and meaning when it's just not a normal part of everyday life, when you can't just get on a plane and go see somebody you love, right? That's right. I think, uh, I think everything that we used to take for granted now feels very, very special to all of us. Yeah. Well, let's turn to the question of the week. We had someone write in and ask how often credit card companies report your payments to a credit reporting bureau. And given that you've worked for some of the biggest banks in your career, I thought you'd be the perfect person to answer this question. Well, it's a great question, and I wish the answers were simple. But, you know, as always, it depends on which credit card you use. Uh, The reporting times vary from card issuer to card issuer. And if a creditor decides to report to one of the three nationwide credit bureaus, Equifax, Experian, or TransUnion, there are guidelines that they must follow. Can you share some of those guidelines for our listeners? Absolutely. Creditors should report 
monthly, preferably on the billing cycle date, which is also known to you as your statement date. Uh, for most companies, these dates are spread throughout the month so that they don't have to produce every customer statement on the same day. For example, many credit card companies send files every day to the credit reporting bureaus. However, some of the smaller companies may only send one file once a month with all the data. And then some credit card companies will report your information in the middle of the month, while other ones report at the end of the month. Are credit card companies legally obligated to report your payments? While technically it's voluntary, I'm hard pressed to think of a major credit card company who doesn't report. This also means that some companies report to all three nationwide credit bureaus, while others report to only one or two, and others may not report at all. Simple, right? <laughs> Completely understandable. I know a lot of people are worried because they're a day late with their payments, or they worry about being a day late because they're worried about the mail delivering on time. What if your payment is a day late arriving at the credit card company? Will they report you as paying late? You know, typically not. But the best thing to do is to consider setting up automatic online payments so that it's easier and faster to pay your bills. So we just set up my 83-year-old mother with online bill pay. She had a payment that took two weeks to get there, and so it was late. And not that she's worried about her credit scores, but she was so annoyed that the payment was late. So we set her up with um, online pay, and she canceled the check. But of course, because this is the way the world works these days, the check got cashed anyway, so she wound up double paying last month. And needless to say, mom wasn't happy. <laughs> well, I'm sure she wasn't, and heaven forbid anybody's still writing checks, so tell her to put her checkbook away and use <laughs> online bill payment, and good luck to her going forward. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, we got her signed up uh, immediately. How quickly are credit card companies required to report your payment to credit reporting bureaus? Credit card companies don't always disclose the specifics of their reporting policies, making it difficult to know precisely when a payment will be factored into your credit scores. You can call your credit card company to ask when they report, or you may consider signing up for a credit monitoring service, which will notify you as soon as your creditor reports your balances. Equifax and the two other nationwide credit bureaus generally update your account as soon as they receive new information meaning your credit scores can change often during the month and suddenly. However, in general, you shouldn't panic if you've made a payment and your credit scores don't immediately change. So if I was watching my credit scores obsessively, like daily, I could see it go up and down. Maybe. It depends on if you're doing things that can make your credit scores change. At the end of a billing cycle, when many credit card companies report, there can be a big fluctuation in your credit scores all at once. And sometimes I see that happening to my own score. If your scores are still unchanged after a month and you've been making payments to creditors, you can check with your creditors to confirm that they've reported your status to one or more of the nationwide credit bureaus. That's really helpful, Bev. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Elise. Take care. And now let's talk about retirement. Our guest this segment is Kelly Levine. He's vice president of Consumer Insight for Allianz Life Insurance Company of North America. Kelly, welcome to the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. Thanks, Elise. It's a pleasure. When it comes to this new study that you've brought out, and I know that you've had some of the different insights from it released all the way through this crazy 2020 that we've been living through, what would you say were some of the key findings that came out of this? Well, Elise, there are a number of things that stick out very prominently. 
First of all, consumers are very, very aware and watching very closely how the markets are performing, the things that are happening in the market. And the closer, because we do have three different categories in this study, the near retirement and the close to retirement and the at retirement, the biggest void between all of these are conversations, the inflation factors, and Social Security obviously is a huge factor, but it really is comforting in one way, but alarming in others that consumers are so aware of what's going on in the marketplace. But isn't this what everybody wants? You know, all the investment professionals I talk to are always delighted that people are actually taking an interest in their retirement because for so long, not so many people were. And that is true. And the most unusual thing last year that we found was that the youngest in the market working marketplace are the ones that are paying the closest attention to it beyond the actual retirees or the near retirees. So it is a broad spectrum and it absolutely is what we've been asking for and financial advisors have been encouraging their clients to do for as long as I've been in this industry. The biggest change, however, that or the biggest surprise, I should say, that I got out of this recent study was that while the general public are very aware of what's going on in the market and their fears of what's happening in that marketplace, they aren't really sharing their greatest fears with their financial advisors, which is astounding to me. You know, so one of the key findings that came out of your study is that 57% of Americans are worried that inflation will make basic retirement expenses unaffordable. You know, that is, I think, a a huge worry, you know, even for those of us who worry we're going to be living out of a shopping bag at some point in time. But what are some of these basic retirement expenses? And are people justified in thinking that basic retirement expenses will be unaffordable? Well, Elise, I think this was a really important point that you brought up in that inflation really doesn't make the headlines all that often. It's not something that is on top of mind for the majority of the public. It stayed at a relatively low level for a very, very long time. But when you think about, say, an average 3% inflation over a 24-year period of time, the cost of living will double over that period of time. And we're told that we should expect, with longer life expectancies, to live 25 years or more in retirement, especially when people are retiring a little earlier than they had expected. So yes, inflation is top of mind. Longevity goes along with that. Like you said, you don't want to live out of a paper bag. And that's a that's a a great fear. And I'm going to steal that from you if you don't mind at some point. Not at all. Well, you know, what's what's interesting about inflation is that, of course, you really just don't even notice it sort of day to day, especially right now where we're in such a low interest rate environment. Right. What we're hearing about is that inflation hasn't even met the Federal Reserve Bank's target of 2% in forever. And now they're they're really trying to push inflation. And I don't think that actually, other than the cost of maybe a gallon of gas, I think a lot of people experience higher costs as they go forward in life, um, mostly due to healthcare expenses, which, which are rising. And I'm wondering how you help people think through the idea of expenses. Like when you're planning out or mapping out with somebody how they're supposed to think about retirement expenses. How do you do that to sort of assuage these fears? Well, 
we're not necessarily assuaging fears, though. We might need to make people more aware of it as well. So it's almost like a double-edged sword. But the idea behind any basic retirement plan is you have to first look at what you're spending your money on and honestly do that and track it over a few months. If you really want to have, if you want to just have a general idea, you could just say, as long as you can have at least 75 to 85% of what you're earning before retirement, in retirement, then you're going to be fine. But that doesn't really address what you just mentioned in that, what about the things that I spend my money on? Everybody's a little bit different, spends their money a little bit different and has different priorities. So if you kept an expense worksheet for a couple of months, you might see what you're spending money on and you might plan for that. But the modern school of thinking is you really want to separate those expenses into three different levels, needs, wants, and desires. The needs is the category that you absolutely have to fund first. And you want to make sure that's covered with guaranteed income and income that will increase over a period of time. And the one payment that one will receive for the majority of Americans beyond those federal employees is Social Security. And Social Security does have a cost of living adjustment built into it. However, the cost of living for Social Security is nowhere near the cost of living adjustment for, say, Medicare. Almost everybody's major concern is, how am I going to pay for health insurance during retirement and health insurance or health costs certainly are outpacing just about any other expense that one could look at in the marketplace, except for, of course, tuition to colleges, which I'm unfortunately very well aware of. So oh, yeah. that's, <laughs> and anybody who's in that And position. hopefully you're done with that before you retire, you're hopefully done with your mortgage and college tuition payments, but Actually, that's a good point because you mentioned mortgages. And even though everybody believes that healthcare is going to be the number one expense throughout retirement, the experts who study retirement expenses, it's actually housing is the number one expense throughout all the different phases of retirement. And that is something that is, surprises a lot of people. Well, it doesn't surprise me since I've been writing about real estate for so long. But, you know, especially because today's baby boomers have many of them go into retirement having just taken out another 30 year loan. Now, when interest rates are at 2 percent, that's not so bad. When interest rates are at 4 or 5 percent, uh, that could be a little bit more troubling. But I want to get back to this idea of needs, wants and desires. What's the difference between wants and desires? Wants could be categorized as I'd really like to take a trip with my spouse, or I want to make sure that I have enough to be able to play tennis or be able to play golf a couple of times a, a month, or I'd be able to go see our grandchildren. Desires are something a little bit higher, like I'd like to leave a financial legacy to my children and my grandchildren. So you could almost say that the desires are the bucket list items. These are the big things. They're not necessarily travel, although they could be, you know, that big once in a lifetime trip, but it could also be just finding a way to take care of the next generation as opposed to treating yourself out, you know, for dinner once or twice a week. Right, right. It's the things that would make retirement a little more fun without yeah. being the big trip. Got it. So I know that one of the things that came out of the study, and you said it a little bit earlier, is that people just aren't sharing these concerns with their financial advisors. Why do you think that is? It's one of the most surprising results that, for me personally, that came out of this survey this year. 
because we talk, or I do, to financial advisors, and I get a lot of head nods always about this, is, well, we need to address volatility, or we need to address longevity statistics with your client, or you may want to address inflation, or there are a number of different factors in retirement that are risks in retirement. But while financial consultants might believe that every single time, of course I talk about that, that is my job. When we saw the results from the survey, most people, as you mentioned, don't really feel like they share that with their advisor. It's kind of funny because the level of trust between a financial advisor and a individual is probably as high or maybe even higher than with a doctor because... Well, it's your money, right? right? It's I mean, money. what's more personal than money? Right, exactly. It's remarkable that the person who is responsible for you being successful all throughout your retirement is one that we might not be talking to as openly as we need to. And it's just like with a medical diagnosis, if you don't know all the facts or the doctor doesn't know all the facts, they're not going to be able to help you or to cure you unless you get a little lucky. The same goes for a financial advisor. And we have to learn as financial professionals to listen a little better and to ask questions and sit back and wait for the answer. We always want to have the answer so it builds confidence. But in reality, I believe that one of the fundamental things that I've started to say this year more than I ever have before is ask a question, wait, and listen for the response. And I encourage everybody who's listening to this to do the same thing with their advisor to just say, I really have been seeing you for a long time. You know, I trust you, or maybe I don't, in which case you should fire them. But I really <laughs> want to, well, it's true. It's like, if you don't trust the person you're talking to, there's no reason to stay with them. There are many excellent financial advisors out there that you can have a great relationship with, but you really want to make sure that you trust the person. And you say, I really am feeling uncomfortable with where I am because of this factor. Can we address this a little bit more? And please don't use jargon. One of the things I'm always trying to avoid whenever I'm talking to either a client session or financial professionals is I use very little industry jargon. I want to make sure that everybody's using common words and talk openly and plainly. I absolutely feel the same way. And in all of my books, I've tried to make them jargon-free zones because I just think it doesn't help anybody. My view of the financial world is that the more complicated they try and make it, number one, the less understood they are. And and number two, the more expensive it's going to be for the consumer. But <laughs> hey, there you go. Confusion results in overspending almost every single time. <laughs> Kelly, thank you so much for being with us today on the Equifax Credit Talks podcast. It was really a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully we'll be able to talk when the next study comes out. Absolutely. Kelly Levine is Vice President of Consumer Insights for Allianz Life Insurance Company of North America. Well, that does it for this week's Equifax Credit Talks podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Please visit the Equifax COVID and Credit Financial Resource Center at Equifax.com, right there on the homepage, and check out our other episodes. We'll be back soon with another Equifax Credit Talks podcast. I'm Elise Glink. Thanks for listening.